Good morning, everybody. So good to see you, even those I can't see on the internet. Good to have you with us as well. Well, today we start a new series, believe it or not. Uh, we got to a change here. We're going to look at the prophet Hosea. And uh, one thing that I've encouraged people to do leading up to this was to begin reading this book. And I want to encourage you in that again. Uh, it's a book that most of us don't know much about. It's not an easy book. But if you can begin reading it, in addition to what we do on Sundays, you will gradually get accustomed and familiar with some of the ideas in it. Uh, if your attention span is good, sit down and read it right through. If your attention span is not as good, well, consider something like reading two chapters a day. 14 chapters in the book, two chapters a day. Every week you'll get through it. Do that for a couple weeks and uh, you'll begin to anticipate some of the questions that I want to look at and the Holy Spirit can use that time to impress certain thoughts on your heart. Okay, so today we just want to get started. We're going to look at the first couple verses so follow along as I read. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. All right, that's a pretty abrupt start, huh? Let's make a couple preliminary observations as we get into this book. As I said, Hosea is, is not real well known to most Christians, if he's known at all. But though he's a small section of the Old Testament, he is important. He's important for his influence on other major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. He's important, as I say here, from getting to Moses, from Moses to Jesus. Uh, Moses, depending on how you date the Exodus, is somewhere between 13 and 15 centuries before Jesus. Uh, Hosea, roughly five centuries after Moses, so what, eight or so before, before Jesus. So from getting to, from Moses to Jesus, he's important in that he represents some major developments in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. So from Moses in the wilderness, having led the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai where God has given them his covenant 
And God says to them, you are my people. I am your God. From there, 15 centuries later, we get Jesus, the new Moses, the final prophet. And Jesus says to the people of Israel, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, particularly to the rulers of Jerusalem, upon you will come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from righteous Abel right on through. He doesn't include himself in that statement, but obviously that's where it ends up. All the righteous blood is coming upon that people in judgment. Huh? So there's a, a long way from you are my people, I am your God, to all the righteous blood that's been shed is going to be visited upon you. Well, Hosea is going to give us some insight into how that transition takes place. Who is Hosea? We don't know. As with many of the prophets, we're told almost nothing about him. We're told him told that he is the son of Beeri, but that doesn't help us because we don't know that family. We don't know the father. We're told that he married a woman named Gomer. That doesn't help us either. We don't know what town he grew up in. We don't know what his background was. Was he a peasant farmer? Was he somehow involved in the leadership of the nation? No information on that. It does appear that he had some training, maybe a lot of training, in regard to the earlier people of God. He shows a, a big awareness of the stories of Genesis and Exodus. So, uh, assuming that Moses' writings were available in that day, he, he has been schooled in them, whether in his home or more officially, we don't know. But beyond that, he is a mystery. Hosea is anything but an autobiogra autobiography of Hosea, right? He, he's, in a sense, he's in the background. The other thing I'd make as a uh, advice for myself and for you is that when you read this book, as we study it together, don't miss the forest for the trees. And by that I mean, you, you understand that saying, right? Don't, don't let details distract you from the bigger picture. <clears throat> And there are a lot of details in Hosea that can distract. There are people and places mentioned that you probably never heard before. Uh, you're not sure why they're there. You're not sure what the reference is. Now, some of it is, as I said, to Genesis and Exodus. We'll try to pick those up. But there's a lot of other things that are, are not obvious at all. And then, <clears throat> we don't have to be troubled about this in a way, but 
This is one of the most obscure bits of Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so the scholars on all different places are across the map on trying to understand what it means. Now we can get distracted by the stuff that we don't understand and the scholars don't understand, but what we need to ask ourselves is what is the big picture, what's the focus, and that is very clear. And if you'll read this book a number of times, it'll become clearer and clearer as you go along. Okay, so those are our preliminary observations. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's jump into this. Oh, let, let me stop here with uh, Dwayne Garrett's commentary. This is from his introduction. I, I thought this was one of the best things I read over the last couple of weeks. Talking about Hosea, he says, it is a book that jolts the reader. It refuses to be domesticated and made conventional. It does comfort the afflicted, but it most surely afflicts the comfortable. It is as startling in its presentation of sin as it is surprising in its stubborn certainty of grace. It is as blunt as it is enigmatic. It is a book to be experienced, and the experience is with God. Now, three quick notes there that I think he's right on target with. It's startling in its presentation of sin. Uh, and it was meant to be that way. We'll talk about that a little bit in a few minutes. It is also surprising in its stubborn certainty of grace. It is one of the high points in the Bible of revealing what sin looks like and simultaneously, sometimes with abrupt changes from one to the other, this revelation of God's love and grace for his sinful people. And it's particularly in that connection between the sin of God's people and the persistent, abounding grace of God that I think we need to let our hearts settle in as we go through this series. And so I like his final statement there. It is a book to be experienced, and the experience is with God. That, that ties into the, the series we did last year, The God Who Is Here, right? The God who is here is the God that we come to know, not just intellectually, but we come to, to learn to know him experientially at a heart level, in the center of our being. I think Todd talked about that a little bit last week, this challenge of moving from the, the head to the heart. Huh? <clears throat> and Hosea is, is very important that way. And I think if we can follow this book and think with it and think with our hearts and ask God to reveal to us his presence so that we're not just people getting more ideas about God, but we are people who are growing in the experience of life with God well, then this series will be more than worth the effort of getting our minds into some of the challenging sections. Okay? <clears throat> All right, let's 
Go to verse 1, the historical setting. Let me read it for you again. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. All right, so here's the historical setting just in that one verse. We're in the period of the divided monarchy or the divided kingdom. Israel, 10 of the tribes, 10 of the 12 tribes, in the north, the capital is Samaria. And as we work through this book, we'll find many references. The majority of references will be to Israel, uh, frequent references to Samaria, which is the capital and in a sense stands for the whole of Israel. We'll also hear references to Judah in the south and uh, we have to keep in mind that that's part of this historical period. How do you get to a divided kingdom? <clears throat> well, you have a civil war. That's how you get there. And that's, that's the preceding history that leads up to this. The monarchy starts as 12 tribes united under the kingship of Saul, Israel's first king. Saul is succeeded by King David, the greatest of all of Israel's kings. <clears throat> and it's David who, by the way, comes from the tribe of Judah. That's the largest of the 12 tribes. And David is from, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the way he's described in the Bible. And David, <clears throat> when he, he first is king just of the southern region, but, but then the northern tribes say, okay, we, we accept David as the successor to Saul. And David decides to establish the capital of the kingdom in Jerusalem. He is succeeded by his son Solomon. And Solomon is the one who builds the temple. And so not only is the political situation centered in Jerusalem, but Israel's worship is centered there as well. Uh, the palace is in Jerusalem, and right up the hill is the temple. So it's, it's together there. Uh, but that doesn't last, because under Solomon's son, the fourth of Israel's kings, Rehoboam, the <clears throat> tribes, especially those northern tribes, decide that the burden of taxation that Solomon laid upon them to build the temple and the forced labor that they were required to give was too much of a burden. And so they decide to secede from the Union. It's a little bit like New Yorkers right now leaving New York. We sympathize with them, right? We understand then what was happening here. So the northern ten tribes under uh, a rebel leader by the name of Jeroboam, not the Jeroboam that's in this passage, by the way. There's two Jeroboams in the Old Testament. So under Jeroboam I, the northern ten tribes secede. And that leads to the divided monarchy, which is still in play 200 years later when Hosea comes on the scene. 
So that's why in verse 1, as we're introduced to the situation, it talks about four kings in Judah in the south, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and it mentions just one king in the north, Jeroboam II. Now, there were actually a few people, descendants of Jeroboam or a couple of usurpers, about half a dozen of them, that came in after Jeroboam's reign, but each one of them got uh, assassinated, basically, by the next person in line, so they had very short reigns. Jeroboam's reign was, was rather long as, as those things went, and so he was much more influential. But it's the period of the divided kingdom. Now, we need to recognize <clears throat> that in the, the ancient world, as uh, sometimes also in the modern world, uh, people functioned under what was called a, a, a sacral society. A sacral society is one in which uh, religion and politics go hand in hand. We are in a secular society. We have this notion of the separation of church and state. Most of the world has not existed with that. Uh, even today, a lot of the world does not have that. And in the ancient world, it was unheard of. Politics and religion went together. And you can see it in what we've already talked about in regard to the united monarchy. What, what happens? David chooses Jerusalem as the capital. His son, Solomon, builds the temple. So politics and religion function in the same town. And to a great extent, the political head is also the religious head. So in some of the ancient societies, Egypt, uh, Babylon, the king is actually an incarnation and an earthly representation of the God that the people worship. So, uh, now that's not the case in Israel, worshiping the Lord, but, but still the king has an enormous place in uniting religion and politics. <clears throat> so, what happens then? Everybody understands this. And when the civil war takes place, now Jeroboam I has a problem. You see what the problem is? Three times a year, Jews were encouraged to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. Three times a year. They didn't all go three times a year. If they were, if they were lucky, they went one time a year. But, but three times a year, people would come and worship in Jerusalem. <clears throat> so what happens after Jeroboam successfully leads a revolt and establishes a northern kingdom? Jeroboam looks around and says, you know, I've got a problem on my hands. The problem is I can't have my people crossing the boundary, running up to Jerusalem to worship there because the likelihood is that as they worship at Solomon's temple, they will begin to think that they ought also to give allegiance to Judah's king, the heir of the house of David. And we just fought a civil war over this, and we won. Why would I send my people back there? 
So being the smart fellow that he is, he said, we'll settle this. We will have our own worship place in the north. And in fact, they have two. They have one in the city of Dan, which is up here in the north, and they have another in Bethel, which is in the hill country right around there. And, uh, and at each of these shrines, they have an image. They have an idol. And it's a, uh, it's a calf idol. Now, interesting, if you remember your Old Testament history and the stories of the Exodus, when Israel came out of Egypt and they journeyed to Mount Sinai and, and Moses went up into the mountain for 40 days and nights <clears throat> to receive the covenant documents, what happened down below? The Israelites said, we don't know where this guy Moses is. Uh, Aaron, uh, make us gods to go before us. And Aaron makes a calf, a golden calf, and the people worship it. So this is in some ways not a new thing. Uh, to what extent Jeroboam is consciously connecting with that earlier history, I don't know. Maybe somebody in my reading is going to talk about that. I haven't seen that yet. But it's not just looking back to Sinai. The fact is that the Canaanites were big on calf worship. The Canaanites worshipped the god Baal. And Baal worship was often linked to calf images. The calf, it was probably a, a bull calf, a male calf, and it was understood to be a sign of fertility. And of course, especially in the ancient world, people are very concerned about fertility. They're, they're concerned that they don't have famine, that they have enough moisture, and that they can get their crops in each year, and that the locusts don't come, and all that stuff. Fertility is very important. And so many of the ancient gods are fertility gods. And the bull was a sign of that. So as we go through Hosea, we're going to find references to uh, a calf. Uh, God will say to them, get rid of that calf in Samaria. We're also going to find references to the Baals, these gods. <clears throat> and, and I think they're not two different things. I think they're really talking about the same thing. Baal worship took place in the context of bowing down and offering sacrifices to these golden images. They were actually wood, but they were, they were plated with gold. And God promises to <clears throat> destroy them. So that's the background. There are many problems that are addressed in this short book of prophecy. But we ought to remind ourselves that the fundamental problem is idolatry. The fundamental problem is when the people of God forget who God is and begin, begin to worship what is not God at all. And, and that persists throughout Israel's history. And uh, it's, the, it's one of the central focal points of this book. <clears throat> 
All right, so let's come to verse 2. Let me read that again. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, this is the beginning of his ministry, by the way. Do you pick that up? When the Lord began to speak to him, here's here's the first thing that Hosea hears. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Woo! What a way to start out. And to have your entire ministry, which may have been 50 years. Hosea ministered over a long period of time if you compare the dates on those kings that are listed. Maybe 50 years. 40, easily. That's his start. It's a shocking thing that God tells him to do. And and he tells him to do it because Hosea is going to bring a shocking message. The message is a combination of hard words, but also dramatic actions. Hard words, dramatic actions. Why so severe? I mean, why start out with a prophet and say, here's what's going to mark your life in ministry. Chaos in your home, in your marriage. Why say that? Well, because there is a need for a shocking message. You see, the the Israelites, particularly these people of the, the northern ten tribes, they are uh, a bit like the three chimps here, you know? Uh, I don't want to listen. I don't want to see the problem. No, I don't want to talk about it. Jeroboam II was a a pretty capable leader. And especially at the early part of Hosea's ministry, he had been quite effective. He uh, He had enlarged the northern kingdom's boundaries. Uh, you know, the, the perennial enemy of the northern part of Israel is Syria, still to this day. And it was no different back there. The Syrians took every advantage they could to press down and steal cities from Israel. And then at times when Syria was weakened, the Israelites would steal the cities back. I mean, that's, that was just life. And during the early part of Jeroboam's reign, both Syria and further north, Assyria, which was a growing empire, they were both relatively weak. And in that time of weakness, Jeroboam, sensing that, expanded the kingdom. So there was a sense of strength militarily. There was a a sense of prosperity economically. And people... At least people in the, in the upper classes, lower class, different story, you read about that especially in Amos, but, uh, but the upper classes, ruling classes, were doing pretty well. And in that kind of a situation, when things seem to be going well for people, 
it is much harder for them to hear any kind of criticism, especially criticism from God himself, the God they claimed to worship. By, by the way, just a little note there. I'm not sure I understand this entirely, but it seems pretty clear that the northern kingdom Israelites worship the calf, the Baal calf, and thought at the same time they were worshiping Yahweh. See, those things got twisted together. It's not that they said, oh, we've given up on Yahweh. No, they're worshiping him in a particular way through the Baal calves. So things are going pretty well, and for a prophet to come and say, folks, this is terrible, and God is about to bring the curtain down, period, full stop, it's the end. And they say, what? Don't, don't talk to me about that. Don't, don't show me anything. We're doing well, aren't we? Well, yeah, and they were in a sense. So to break through that, there's this radical thing that God says, Hosea, I want you to marry a woman who's going to live unfaithfully with you. And she's going to taint your whole family. See, have children with her. And I think some of the versions say, have children of prostitution. The children will be tainted because the question of those who watch will be, are they even Hosea's kids? This is what this man has to live with. Day after day. Experience the, what, the pity and the disdain of his neighbors and those who watch, who know what's taking place. But God says, Hosea, I'm asking you to do this because this is how Israel behaves with me. I want you to be a visible picture to them of their relationship with me, the divine husband. So the hard words come together with the dramatic actions in an effort to break through this veneer that is over everybody of, let's not talk about it, things are good, don't upset the apple cart. Israel cries to me, says God. My God, we, Israel, know you. And God says, Israel has spurned the good. The enemy will pursue him. See the difference in perception? They think in worshiping the calf Baal that they are knowing God and following him. That's how deceptive idolatry is, especially when things are going well. See, I, th I think something that, that God is pushing the American church on today, maybe the worldwide church, I don't know, but I think one thing that coronavirus is doing that may be beneficial for us is it's poking us when things seem to be going well, 
when the stock market's booming and there's all kinds of signs that we like and prosperity is with us, we say, don't talk to me about problems. I don't, I don't see anything. I don't, I don't see any idolatry around. But God has ways of getting our attention and exposing our idolatries. I wonder if that's part of what is taking place in this pandemic. Could God be struggling to get our attention in a way that he's not used before, at least not in our lifetimes? Is there anything we need to hear? So dramatic actions, prostitution and betrayal, that's the, that's the heart of this dramatic lesson. The breaking of trust, so devastating to a marriage, so devastating to the divine human covenant that God has set up with his people, so devastating. And God wants people to watch Hosea's marriage and to draw a lesson from it. Because in Israel's relationship to Yahweh, there is something major that is missing. What's the missing ingredient? And, and here you come to an important theme in Hosea that you ought to look for as you read through it. Uh, and, and I'll give you a way to, to look for it. We'll probably come across this or talk about it again later in the series. <clears throat> but it's a Hebrew word, hesed. It's translated in a variety of ways. It's very common in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's translated steadfast love. That's a good translation. Sometimes it's tra translated mercy. Sometimes loving kindness. Uh, in Psalm 23, David's Psalm of the Shepherd. Remember how that finishes out? Surely goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. Mercy there is this word hesed. It'll pursue David. He's convinced of that. I prefer this third uh, translation here. I think in a majority of cases, it fits really well. The translation, covenant faithfulness. Surely goodness and covenant faithfulness will follow me all the days of my life. This is what is uh, missing in Israel's response to God. God is marked always. Surely goodness and covenant faithfulness will follow me all the days of my life because God is always marked by hesed, by his faithfulness to what he has promised his people in the covenant. Always faithful. Remember Paul? In the New Testament saying, God is faithful. 
As surely as God is faithful, my word to you was not yes and no, but in him, in Christ, it has always been yes. Because God always keeps his covenant commitments, his hesed. But that's what Israel doesn't have. They ended up getting married, if you will, to Yahweh, to be his people. But they have not learned hesed. They've been promiscuous. They have run after other lovers. They worship the Baal calf. This is God's complaint. Hosea 6.4, what can I do with you, Ephraim? Ephraim's another name for Israel. What can I do with you, Israel? What can I do with you, Judah, southern kingdom as well? Your love, Hesed, your covenant faithfulness is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Pretty cool last night, right? Woke up chilly in my bed, had the windows open. Went outside, dew everywhere. But I think it's going to be a nice dry day. The dew will be gone. God says that's, that's the problem with Israel. That's the problem with Judah. The people of God have no covenant faithfulness. They're married to me, but they want to play the field. Just like Gomer wants to chase after other lovers and destroy her marriage to Hosea. So there's this shocking message, dramatic words, dramatic actions, hard words. In an effort to break through the comforts, the contentedness, the religiosity, because these were religious people. But in an effort to break through and help them to understand what they were doing. And you know what? With most of them, it does not work. As powerful as it is, part of the message of Hosea is that it needs something more than this powerful visual and verbal presentation. It needs a stronger message to get through to the hard hearts of God's people. And that's, that's why eight centuries later, Jesus is in Jerusalem saying, the blood of all the righteous from Abel all the way down to me is going to fall in this city. Because that wasn't enough, believe it or not. Oh, it, it no doubt touched a few people here and there, but, but in terms of the direction of Israel and later the direction of Judah, it did not have its effect. Now, if that doesn't work, what can, what can ever break through to our hard hearts? 
And of course, we've learned now that we always have to ask that question, where is this story going? And the answer is, it's going to Jesus, not simply the Jesus who condemns the sins of Jerusalem, but to the Jesus who lays down his life at Calvary. And so if, there, you know, if there's a powerful portrayal of a message from God in the life of Hosea, what is this? What kind of power is this? What sort of a shock to the religious sensibilities of the people of Israel and indeed ultimately to the world is this? That the God of Hesed, whose covenant faithfulness never fails, is a God who goes so far to bring back the adulterous wife, the unfaithful people, that he lays down his own life. That's good news for people like you and me. That's powerful good news. In word and deed, this is the breakthrough event, not just for Israel, but for the world. If this event does not speak to us deeply and impact our hearts and transform us from the faithless people whose covenant Faithfulness is like a morning mist into people who commit deeply in faith and allegiance and trust toward God. If this doesn't do it, friends, nothing will. This is the gospel. This is the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. my prayer that all of us through our study in Hosea will become people who are more cross-centered more aware of this dramatic action that God has taken so that we can move out of that promiscuous life of idolatry and worship and serve and love the God who is here. Let's pray. God, we rejoice that we have not only Hosea's powerful testimony to, to your faithful love, but that we have the witness of the life and words of Jesus himself, that you would do anything, that you would give the best that you have to make the marriage of God and 
his people healthy and strong. So we turn to you this morning, Lord. We pray that this beginning of our study in Hosea might not be simply an academic exercise, not just gathering a little bit more history, not just thinking about some challenging ideas, but that it might be the beginning of a fresh experience of life in your presence and a deepening of our faithfulness to the God who loves us with an everlasting love. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.